Welcome to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. Before we start, this podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app. I'm your host, Stephanie Fanasia, and I have a special guest with us today, all the way from sunny is it sunny right now (laughs) yes actually sunny north carolina in the us of a this is nathan phillips welcome thank you my arms are tired (laughs) and i'm happy to be here thank you for having me thank you for coming it's currently 10 14 p.m in uh i almost said brisbane melbourne australia (laughs) feelings uh, and 8.14 a.m. here in sunny North Carolina. I've actually had a lot of caffeine today, and you've only just started your caffeine probably for the day. Yeah, well, I uh, I just took some Excedrin a bit ago because my head was hurting when I woke up, so, you know, we're raring to go here. <laughs> we'll see how we, how we go. So, Nathan, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your background and what you do and... Sure. Uh, hello, Psychocinematic listeners. Um, again, I'm very happy to be here. I manage a library in the southeastern U.S. Uh, I am technically not a librarian because I do not have a degree in library science, although I can do everything that they do. <laughs> and as far as what qualifies me to be here in this space, I um, not much, but I, uh, I, I've written professionally, but not really about film and TV. However, like as sort of a hobbyist, I have written very regularly about film for about the past 16 years, and some TV also, which is relevant to this particular subject. I thought about you doing the podcast um, because you have so much historical knowledge about film, also uh, music as well. Well, thank you. But with a very critical lens too, uh, we'll, we'll get to this now, I guess. You have sort of you set yourself a bit of a goal to watch every single Oscar-winning film. I don't know why I did that, but yes, I did. That is correct. So about several about uh, nine years ago, I started seeing all of the Best Picture winners from 1927 on that I had not already seen, and then from there, I did uh, director, screenplay actor, actress, and the supporting actor and actress. And I completed it um, five or six years ago, but the problem with that is that now every time there's another ceremony, if there's anything I haven't seen yet, then, like, you know, the gods will strike me down if I don't uh, (laughs) catch catch up. So, you know, it's a curse, but... It must be pretty hard to catch up right now because of COVID. We can't go to the movies, which breaks my heart. Uh, I haven't been to a movie theater since March of last year, as is true for most, most people in the U.S. So, I mean, like, last night I watched Promising Young Woman, and I just felt like it... Uh, I really hated not having seen that in the theater. I won't, I won't tell you how I watched it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, I watched it on my phone. Oh. <laughs> no, I went to the movies. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I got to see it in the cinema. <laughs> sorry. I thought you were saying because you violated... No, 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 no. Hey, you know, I. this is what we get because... I'll just try not to rub it in. Oh, it's fine. Because one country, you know, handled it competently from the first and one didn't. So what else can you say, really? But I mean, it is what it is. Having said that, your country is dealing with the vaccine extremely well compared to Australia. We are doing a terrible job of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And I mean, Canada's having problems with the vaccine, too. 
Um, oh really? Is, it's really it's kind of it's very incongruous that the U.S. actually rolled it out. It's almost like the most socialist thing that we've ever done, like at least in the last uh, seventy years. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> Have you seen anything else besides Promising Young Woman? I saw Nomadland, which was fine. I mean, it wasn't anything. It wasn't a movie that I would have been like passionate about, uh, whereas I think Promising Young Woman was was really quite good. Um, actually, the best thing, stuff that I've watched lately was not Oscar related. I've been watching this um, Agnes Varda. I think I said that right. I want to say Agnes, but it's actually pronounced Agnes. This Agnes Varda box set with all of her films, oh. um, and I had only really seen like her shorts and documentaries before I got this, and it's just terrific. It's a great delving into someone's whole creative life and i've been enjoying it immensely and uh but yeah um what did you think of promising young woman um i really enjoyed it 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 was very satisfying and extremely well done i also saw the father oh yeah last week which just destroyed me i'm enjoy. i'm looking forward to that but i have to wait until we i can buy it at work oh yeah for the collection and then i can see it but yeah i'm i'm, I'm excited to see that too also, um, I watched it ages ago, but I was really disappointed to see Crip Camp did not win the best documentary. Um, I haven't seen what did win, which was My Octopus Teacher. I haven't. I've heard of Crip Camp, but I have not heard of the other film at all. Like, I mean, I... I think they were both. They're both on Netflix. Um, okay. Huh. Well, in Australia they are. I'm assuming that means they're in the US as well. <laughs> um, but Crip Camp was amazing. It's like... Um, sort of the beginning of the disability rights movement and hmm. yeah they they did like a protest and got some rights and in the 70s I think it was it's pretty like it's a story that you don't hear about that often so right I I loved it and I was a bit sad that it didn't win I wanted to ask what you wanted to do and you um your first choice was some episodes of The Simpsons, indeed, which is a little bit of a, a different turn. But I mean, we've we focused on TV shows before, but obviously The Simpsons is like a massive piece of work, and they cover so many different things. It's longer than the Iliad. It's it's a you know, it's, <laughs> it's a big thing to tackle if you yeah. You know. And what like what's your history of The Simpsons? I was six when Simpsons mania happened in America. I was a little bit too young. I was aware of the t-shirts being around, but that was about it. Mm. Um, and about five years down the line, um, I had one friend who was allowed to watch the Simpsons and showed it to me. My parents didn't even know what it was, so they didn't bother to forbid me from watching it. Although they <laughs> initially were, when I did start watching it at home, they, they were initially very weirded out by it, but then eventually started to like it. But um, I did have another friend who was not allowed to watch it, but ironically was allowed to listen to whatever music he wanted and introduced me to Radiohead around the same time. So it was a big, it was a big spring in my life. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, I, it was in syndication then, uh, which I don't know how that works in Australia, but in, in, in America, there's this whole deal where if a network show has been on long enough, about 100 episodes, it can go into syndication where it gets played every single day um, in mm. reruns. And uh, so The Simpsons was on every afternoon, and I started watching it at first just out of curiosity because it just seemed... It seemed a little radical at the time. Um, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought of it as looking very rough 
um, compared to things that I was used to, and I also felt like it was very, um, it seemed harsh to me at, a t at the time in a way that really intrigued me, and uh, that's not, again, that's not really how I think of it now, but I think it was just that it wasn't very, um, it didn't feel like it was, like, coddling me. It, it mm. was not just meant for me as a child, and so it felt like it was kind of like a window into something like the real world. Mm. And at the time, this was still early days where most of the episodes were quite good. And I mean, it was so I gradually, as I tend to do, became overly obsessed with it. And uh, it was for a couple of years, it was the thing that I probably thought the most about. <laughs> and I kept watching the new episodes every week. And then it started to decline really, really precipitously a few years after that. But mm. uh, and eventually I gave up on it. But in its moment, it was a big deal. It wasn't like anything else on TV when it started. Oh, I think, yeah, I think that's fair to say, yeah. I was one of those friends that weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons. <laughs> so, and it ruined my life. And, like, similar to your friend who was allowed to listen to whatever music they wanted, like, I was allowed to watch The X-Files. I was allowed to watch, <laughs> like, lawyer dramas like Ally McBeal. But I couldn't watch The Simpsons. So it didn't make sense to me. And I actually had lunch with, with my dad. He, I d told him he said hi. And today I was like telling him what we, were, what we were talking about tonight. And he's like, yeah, I can't really remember why we didn't let you watch The Simpsons. We just didn't think it was good. And, and we didn't, <laughs> we thought it was going to be a bad influence on you. And I just like gently said, well, actually, dad. <laughs> It probably would have made me a more worldly person. But look, I'm still happy with how I turned out, so you didn't really ruin me. But There you go, I <laughs> I missed out on so many jokes and references people may, like even some of my best friends who you know, they'll make a joke and they'll, you know, they'll they'll have a whole conversation. I won't understand what they're talking about. Blinky, Blinky the three-eyed fish. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do know who that is. Um, like some things I do remember. <laughs> but when it first came out, I remember I, I, I would have been, what, three or four, I think. But I, rem I have a very vivid memory of being like, ooh, there's a new show coming out. Oh, I can't wait to watch it. And it was going to be on that night. And... Mum and Dad's like, okay, it's bedtime. And I'd be like, but The Simpsons are coming on. I really want to watch The Simpsons. And they're like, no, no. And I was like, let me watch The Simpsons. <laughs> and I can't. Yeah, I have a very vivid memory of being so upset that I couldn't watch The Simpsons. And that was the, that was my life from that point onward, I guess. But The X-Files was fine. But The X-Files was okay. No, I think, that, I mean, parents tended to, I mean, there, there tended to be this view that it was very subversive. And, I, and my mom said that it was because of the, like, she said it was because of their hair. She said she was <laughs> suspicious of it because of their strange hair, uh, which I, I don't know. I guess it's a generational thing. I don't know. It's hard for us to imagine now because it seems so relatively wholesome compared to what came later. So I don't know. It's. I think my mom said she didn't want us to turn out like Bart. Oh, it's funny. I, I did get in trouble with school once for, for something, and uh, my dad uh, cornered me and was like, is that something Bart did? And so I, <laughs> I, I feel like um, a lot of kids who were my age then who were sort of like introverted, I think would be sort of expected to be like Lisa people. Like, I mean, like Lisa mm. would be their, their character. And I mean, to some extent that was true for me. I mean, all of my favorite episodes revolve around Lisa and that's always been true. Mm. Um, 
but at the same time, I do think that something that gets lost as the show has, has gone on and also even got lost at the time because Bart was sort of a Mickey Mouse level cultural icon in the early days where, you know, don't have a cow, you know, and all that. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, I do think that, that they were both in, in particular, even more than the parents were very three dimensional characters early on. Mm. And, and I didn't really, I don't really want to talk about myself that much but I mean I, I I was not a great student although I think I was reasonably smart and so when Bart like I was just saying about my dad when Bart sort of had these moments where he was like he gets himself into hot water with teachers or whatever and he's just like lying to try to protect himself I mean I did feel a very strong kinship with that too mm. so it was almost like Bart and Lisa were sort of two like sides of me in a way or they felt mm. that way at the time and those like real formative years of being 11 or 12 or whatever and so yeah I mean they were very special to me and that's what kind of made it hard you know later on when it was like you know the show is still in the air but it's this like sort of shell of itself yeah <laughs> which is not which is not true in the phase that we're talking about today but I mean that's a whole other story but I wonder if like initially the plan was for Lisa and Bart to be very like two different sides of yourself as well like the ideal sides anyway like the smart rational but also overthinking Lisa and then the just impulsive live life I think it's somewhat by design uh, but I also think that there was a lot more um malleability to the characters then is that a word malleability and uh <laughs> we I mean I think that you know Bart was shown to be just kind of he was smart but he wasn't really book smart so yeah. to speak and uh, street smart yeah, yeah, there you go. And 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 Lisa was um Lisa could enjoy Bart's antics at times and she could also be sort of um strayed from the path. You could tell that they were siblings in those first few years. Yeah. Um even though they sort of had a very different affect. So you picked these two episodes which are uh Moaning Lisa from season 1 and Fear of Flying from season 6. Imposing my will on the podcast. Which I was very happy to do cuz Less work for me. Um, but what made you choose these two episodes? Quite different reasons, although, as you pointed out, they ended up having a lot of interesting similarities. Uh, but Moaning Lisa sprang to mind because I just love talking about it. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes. Uh, it's very early. It's, you know, it comes from a time when the people working on the show had not seen a finished episode yet. And so we're sort of flying in the dark a bit. Oh, true. Um, it's a very simple story, uh, It's and it's just about, um, it's about being depressed. It's about Lisa being depressed, and it, mm. to me, it, it it's a very, um, I've more and more found it a, a one of the more accurate portrayals of how it actually feels to be in that state. Mm. And, and then for Fear of Flying, it sprang to mind because of, um, because it centers around therapy and mm -hmm. you being a therapist and me being someone who is in treatment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm also in treatment and a therapist. So <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. So, so as most uh, psychologists are also, <laughs> but no, it, it's just therapy and depictions of therapy are of particular interest mm. to me um, ever since I started therapy personally. And so I wanted, and I, I, bug you an email frequently <laughs> with therapy questions just about uh, work. And, and so I, I thought, well, this will be a good chance to make stuff talk about <laughs> this. So, you know, that was my, that was kind of my thing. And I would, I, I will say also that 
in my memory, I hadn't seen that episode in a while. And in my memory, it was really flippant about therapy. And I mean, I think to some extent it is, but I think as you pointed out, it does get some more things right than I had Mm. thought, um, which we'll talk about. But it was definitely more about the fact that it depicted therapy than about the fact that it depicted a fear of flying, because I don't know how, well, we'll talk about (laughs) that, but I don't don't know how uh, profoundly it explores that. I think it's interesting. Uh, Morning Lisa would have been like the first season, so like 1989? Uh, yeah, made in 1989. Uh, there's a copy of the script on the DVD. It's dated May 1989, and it aired in, I think, February 1990. And Fear of Flying would have been 94? So, like, it would have been one of the first portrayals of therapy in um, Fear of Flying. At least in cartoon form. Apart from, like, Probably. Dr. Katz. I don't know when that came out, but... I'm trying to think of other depict. Okay, so Animaniacs depicts therapy <laughs> uh, in this very first episode, in fact. Oh, wow. Uh, which was about a year earlier. Um, I'm, I'm thinking. But yeah, certainly, I mean, I can't think of any Looney Tunes that, <laughs> that explore this subject. I'm assuming uh, they wouldn't have been very accurate depictions in the Looney Tunes. Probably not. The Chuck- There's a Chuck Jones cartoon, Punch Trunk, which is brilliant about a tiny elephant uh, roaming around society you, you didn't know you were going to go here <laughs> on psychocinematic it sounds uh, like something i would show to Casper. and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that includes it's very good he would love it uh, anyway it includes a, a, a psychiatrist i'm gonna shut up no now. this is this is why i got you on this podcast because you have all this knowledge about timelines and cinema and hollywood and tv in general so yeah so you know it would have been pretty groundbreaking in both episodes. Which The Simpsons often was. And, and I do, I think it's worth mentioning that um, we think of The Simpsons, I think now in the sort of circles that you and I are kind of in online when we deign to grace social media with <laughs> ourselves, is probably considered a little bit regressive now for things like Apu mm, and things like um, even Smithers to an extent, although I don't, well, we could, that's a whole other subject. And also just the fact, just a lot of the general, the humor is not what would be used now necessarily a lot of it but i think that that's maybe more a consequence of how long the show has been on than anything it's that's why you don't start a narrative show that continues for 30 odd years because when it goes through multiple epochs (laughs) i mean smithers for example was on the cover of i think it was out magazine in the 90s and was considered like a it was considered exciting at the time for there to be a, a major character who was gay on a TV sitcom because it was so yeah. unusual then. Oh, wow. And obviously now it looks like a stereotype if you're looking at it as a 2021 mm. show. But, I mean, in its day, there was a degree of innovation there. Um, and speaking, not to go on too much, but one other connection between these two episodes is that they both revolve around the two female characters mm-hmm. and the main cast which was, didn't happen every week. Yeah, true. (laughs) Didn't happen, you know, I don't know, I haven't done the numbers, but I mean, Lisa episodes uh, were, you know, infrequent, and Marge episodes were quite Mm. rare. And I mean, this is probably partly because The Simpsons had no permanent female writers in Ah. those years. Um, There's a story that Sam Simon, who was basically the showrunner, and I don't know if this is true, but this is alleged by uh, Mimi Pond, who was a freelance writer who wrote the first episode that aired and is a really good cartoonist. She said that Sam Simon had just gone through a divorce and said that he didn't want any women in the writing room. Cool, Sam. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Uh, And so there were freelance writers like Mimi Pond and... um, 
Nell Scoville, who worked on the first couple of seasons, but they did not have a full-time female writer until season six. Wow. Five or six. Jennifer Crittenden. Um, so just take that for what it <laughs> might mean as far as... Yeah. Yeah, you know. Because we will talk about it, but I feel like they are, for, for its time, pretty good episodes about women in that it passes the Bechtel test, both of them, I think. <laughs> Which would have been rare right. then. <laughs> especially with a, a very male-led show. And I think they're still quite relevant today. We'll talk about the reasons for this, but I mean, it often did a good job of dealing with these issues. It was just that those issues were frequently, you know, probably sidelined and not taken as seriously as they probably mm. should have been. But I mean, I think that that was probably the case at every sitcom that was being written in the early 90s. And I think 80s. Simpsons is particularly meaningful in that way because it's what you watched when you were growing up in our generation unless you were banned yes. from it. Um, so it really sh- it really <laughs> shaped how you saw the world. And, like, I know a lot of people, probably yourself included, and myself in some ways, that didn't... Like, a Simpsons reference would be completely lost on them until they, like, went and saw The Planet of the Apes or, or um, A Streetcar Named Desire or whatever. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, you know, the things that you learn about in the world were from The Simpsons and until you experienced it yourself. There's like an episode for everything. Yes, 100%. I will never forget the first time that I saw Citizen Kane, which is I still the movie seen that, that. I, I, I love. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> well, I, it's great. I mean, it, I, I love it so much. I mean, it's hard for a movie to live up to that kind of pedestal that it's on, but I mean, it's a great movie. But it's so amazing to see it after you've grown mm. up with The Simpsons because virtually every scene in it, no exaggeration, has had a reference made to it in The Simpsons. I mean, even just tiny little things. Like, there's a scene of Orson Welles tearing up paper in the um, in the in a theater, and I mean, it's there's a there's a sequence in I think season four where Homer. It's it's just a small little moment where Homer is doing it in the same context, and you would never even think that it was a mm. movie reference. But I don't know. It's just that, and that um, this isn't super relevant to psychocinematic but I mean part of that is because The Simpsons was coming along at a time when VHS was sort of like it was sort of new that you could go to the video store and see any mm. classic movie and then sort of match it shot for shot but oh, having yeah. fun with it categories so um I kind of left this one up to you <laughs> um was there any lived experience of any of the creators of The Simpsons episode you know the the thousand creators of The Simpsons <laughs> <laughs> not the easiest thing to quantify <laughs> that's why I was like I don't know <laughs> where do I start with that <laughs> leave it to me so in order to answer that question you have to kind of go through the idea of who is responsible for a Simpsons episode and we're talking about two different eras of the show. So in the first season, um, the three sort of main creative forces were Matt Groening, of course, and then um, James L. Brooks and Sam Simon. Matt Groening was a San Francisco cartoonist, sort of underground famous for a strip called Life mm. in Hell that ran in a lot of alt-weeklies. It's very good. Is it still around? No, he ended it about 10 years ago. Oh, okay. I'm a bit late to the party. <laughs> he was discovered, well, sort of discovered by Brooks. Um, one of his cartoons was gifted to Brooks, and Brooks hired him to do Interstitle. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, <laughs> shorts on the sketch comedy show he produced called The Tracy Ullman Show, starring Tracy Ullman. Um, which was one of the first shows on the Fox network. 
in the U.S. And uh, so he did these one. He wrote all these one-minute shorts that were then animated by a couple of people who did go on to animate on The Simpsons itself. Graining, um, the only for first of all, his creative input in the half-hour show has been very overstated over the years. He has very few writing credits. Mm. He has directed the voice actors a lot, but um, I, I don't really. It's generally believed that he mostly drew the guys took the check and, you know, kind of went on with his life. But, um, probably took a lot of checks there. Yeah. It took a lot of checks. They all, <laughs> they all took, they all took a lot of checks. Um, <laughs> but I will say that there's an interesting interview I found with him that was in Playboy in 1990, right at the peak of the Simpsons moment in America. And he does say an interesting thing. And I wish I, I meant to copy and paste it somewhere, but I forgot. But it, at any rate, essentially what he says is that when he was a child, he went through his parents' drawer and found like the book on what your child does, you know, the Wonder Weeks. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and his um, his dad years later was like, you know, you never did what the book said you would. And, and, and Groening said, well, you know, that's because I read the book. So, <laughs> But he, I mean, Life in Hell definitely reflects someone who has a lot of cynicism and maybe a lot of depression. But, I mean, d- depression is, is tricky. There's It's a little bit hard to, a lot of people who suffer from it are never going to talk about it. Some of them are never going to even know it yeah. or, or admit it to themselves, you know. Especially at the time that they were creating the Simpsons like the stigma is is still bad but it would have been so much worse back then and that understanding yeah, as well for these tough 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 men uh, uh Jim Brooks he usually goes by Jim I don't know him personally so I don't have the familiarity to call him that but anyway um hard to say he's very private but uh, from from what we know he uh is more of an empath than anything because most of his work tends to revolve around tricky human emotions, although he's mostly done comedies. Uh, but it's things like Terms of Endearment, uh, mm. Broadcast News, the show Taxi, the film As Good As It Gets, which you're probably inevitably going to do an episode on oh, at some yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, Mary Tyler Moore Show. And I mean, a lot of things, he was well known for having very three-dimensional um, women characters um, mm. as leading all most of his movies um and a lot of his shows taxi's more of an ensemble but uh hard to say much about his lived experience and then finally sam simon who is an interesting case from everything that i've ever learned or been told sam simon in the first two seasons of the simpsons was what we would call the showrunner mm-hmm. officially all three were but um they were all full-time on the simpsons but people over the years have kind of let it slip that sam simon was um really responsible for the tone the characterizations a whole lot of what happened on the half hour simpsons Mm. and he did not like to talk about it he said in Mm. one of the few times he was interviewed later in his life he died uh, about six years ago of cancer but one of the few times that he did talk about it i think it was on mark Marin's podcast um and and he did say that when he works on a show he also worked after the simpsons on the drew carey show and a couple other things that when he works on a show, he becomes a monster and impossible to deal with. And that is borne out by everything I've ever heard about how bad it was to work for and with him. And so, but, but at the same time, all these people who had this huge problem with him on a personal level, which were numerous graining, could not stand him, which is official. I mean, it's on the record. Uh, Jim Brooks gave Mm -hmm. a long interview to the museum of television and radio where he said he was talking about starting the Simpsons. And he said, you know, Matt and Sam 
really didn't like each other mm. and they were like about to come to blows during the big earthquake that happened in los angeles in 1989 so i don't know again it sounds like he must have had some sort of a I don't know. It doesn't sound like he was in the most mentally healthy. Yeah, sounds Is like... that a proper term? Should I not say that? <laughs> he experienced some mental ill health, probably. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, think I think that's fine. It sounds like he probably had something. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like he wasn't mm. the happiest person in the world. I mean, because if mm. you treat your coworkers that way... You know. I was just going to say, it obviously impacted his relationships, so think we could say he would have some sort of disorder. To finish, like, I mean, I, I got sidetracked myself there, but like... I was just going to say that all the people who say all this stuff about how difficult he was also say that, I mean, he deserves the credit that Matt Groening gets for basically putting the show together. But, you mm. know, he, he was pretty much, he was, his involvement was greatly reduced after the second season and was, he left altogether at the end of season four, but negotiated this deal where he continued to get paid an insane amount of money. That's also not a good thing to say. A very large amount of money. <laughs> That's right. I didn't even click. I'm so bad. <laughs> for this show until uh, he died. Um, and to his credit, he funneled all of that money or a lot of it into animal rights groups. <laughs> I dislike him less for that. I know. Reason. Well, I mean, it's, it's a roller coaster a little bit. It seems like when he wasn't working on, on The Simpsons anymore that he mellowed out a bit. But yeah. uh, Polly Platt, Matt Groening, lots of other people, some people who have said this that I can't name because I was attempting to write a book about the show a long time ago. And uh, But anyway, oh. I, have, I have... And Mimi Pond, who I mentioned before. Uh, it doesn't sound like it was all that pleasant, but that's, uh, I think that's all I got for you there. <laughs> oh, I should say in particular, in terms of for Moaning Lisa, I did find out from listening to the audio commentary that it was, uh, James L. Brooks who pitched that episode. Um, he just wanted to do an episode where Lisa is sad, but she doesn't know why. Um, that was actually a pitch for the show Taxi that never got made because that show got canceled after a couple of years. And then the actual writers of that episode were Al Jean and Mike Reese, who worked on the show from the beginning. Uh, Al Jean actually is still there. He runs the show now. Oh, wow. For whatever reason. And, um, he said that they were very apprehensive about taking on an episode with such a vague plotline. Like all of the people who were on The Simpsons then, they were... Privileged white male Harvard graduates. So much lived experience of being a teenage girl. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also true of David Sachs, who wrote Fear of Flying. He was also a Harvard guy. Um, Harvard really had their talons in the Simpsons writer's room back then. I don't know about now. A couple of things that were specifically taken from people's lives. The band teacher scene with Mr. Largo yelling at Lisa was Matt Greening. He had a music teacher who hated the Beatles and yelled at kids who <laughs> hated, who liked the Beatles. Um, <laughs> he sounds like a delight. <laughs> because Greening was like a kid right in Beatlemania, um, much as we were kids during Simpsons Mania Connection. <laughs> and he did talk about, relevant to that episode, in Life in Hell, one of the things that he did was publish his uh, diary from fifth grade, and which uh, pretty much verbatim, as far as I know. And he does talk in that about, um, you know, being bullied by other kids, by teachers, by authority figures. And, and so... You know, maybe a little more than usual, there is some of him in this. But like you said, no experience of being a young girl, obviously, or, you know, any of that. Oh, and, and he did tell a story that I always really liked. Well, I don't know if liked is the word, but he talked about how um, he had a teacher who was asking where about everyone's grandparents. 
and he mentioned that his grandmother was Russian, was from Russia, and uh, the teacher said, I'm sorry to hear that, because they don't believe in Santa Claus and, and God, and they don't celebrate Christmas in Russia. So, you oh. know, that's <laughs> a great example of, you know. Poor dude. And he walked every day over the bridge that the bridge Bleeding Gums Murphy in this episode is playing on, is, is based on. It's in Portland, Oregon, and they called it the Suicide Bridge. Everyone in town called it that. He said it was kind of strange to walk to school every day over the suicide bridge. That's interesting because seeing the bridge, I like immediately thought that looks like one of those bridges where you see someone who's about to jump off the edge in movies. And, and yeah. there you go. So just briefly to tell this story, uh, the other episode we talked about, like you said, is from season six. And so there was a big change in the staff. Um at the end of the fourth season, like I said, Sam Simon left. So did all but one of the original writers. Um, John Swartzwelder stayed behind. And there were a couple of new hires, Conan O'Brien, Bill Oakley, and Josh Weinstein, who all stayed, who had been hired during the fourth season, I think. But otherwise, it was a totally new crew. And they hired a new showrunner from outside, which in the history of The Simpsons, which is now 32 years, is the only time they've ever done that. Oh. His name was David Merkin. He, at the time, had a background in sketch comedy. The name of the show that he worked on has slipped my mind. But it was uh, very controversial because they made a joke about Tory Spelling, and you don't do that on Fox. <laughs> uh, he, he had to be go into the press and defend himself, and apparently, like, James L. Brooks liked the way that he handled it or something. But uh, <laughs> Merkin did, by the way, go on to make several films. Um, he directed Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, a personal favorite. That's one of my favorite movies. Oh, great. Unfortunately, I... there's, there's really nothing I can cover in the podcast uh... today, so I can't do it. <laughs> Oh, actually, oh my God, she wears a back brace. Okay, we'll save that one for later. Hey! <laughs> anyway, so you can tell by Merkin's work on the show that his background was in sketch comedy, which was true of some of the several of the people who worked on the show. Like I think George Meyer or Ted worked on Saturday Night Live. But I mean, as far as a showrunner, you can tell a big difference because his episodes are not really story based in any real sense. They tend to be jokes that are sort of kind of strung together by a very thin story. A little bit of the beginning of sort of the family guy structure. Now they're very funny, um, but there's if you watch the show in sequence, you see a real change when he takes over. Yeah. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it's definitely different. Um, it's definitely and- for going from the first episode, we were, but season one episode to season six, it's a huge, it's like two different shows. It's, it's a huge change. And I mean, that's partially because, you know, it had changed a little bit in season two and a little bit in season three, but I mean, it was a more, it was kind of a smoother progression. And then season five and six, it's a, it's a very different situation. And, and, mm. um, David Merkin kind of liked a lot of zaniness, a lot of non sequiturs and, to be fair, he probably really did a lot to set the tone of the way that the show is remembered now, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the shows, a lot of the episodes that he produced are some of the most popular and well-known ones in the whole run of the show. And he was there for two years, and he occasionally has come back and produced a few episodes, like the one where Lisa becomes a vegetarian. Fear of Flying, the the pitch in the writer's room, came from David Sachs, who ended up writing the episode. I don't know much about David Sachs, I apologize. The pitch was very simply, Marge goes to a psychiatrist. There was no <laughs> initial... <laughs> there was no initial um, connection to the fear of flying. And from the way I'd that love the epi- to know why Marge, too. Is it because she's a lady. of being a misogynist? Because, <laughs> of course,
most women be crazy? Because women got to go to get the head shrinker, you know? <laughs> uh, so I guess it seems like one of those things where they kind of, they started with a concept, psychiatrist, and they just tried to, like, use some sort of a process to go backwards from there to figure out how it happened, which is how you end up with this wild structure where it starts with Homer playing a prank on Mo and somehow leads to Marge and therapy, you know? It's... Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's wild, wild shit. Which is... From memory, how a lot of ep- Simpsons episodes kind of... Yeah. Like, the, the structure of the episodes were at that time. Yeah, like, sitcoms classically have an A and a B story, where, like, there's the main plot that's going on, and then there's the, uh, you know, there's sort of the subplot that's just got it, you know, so where you give the other characters something to do that aren't directly involved with that particular mm. installment. The Simpsons has more like an A, B, C, D, E story, where, like, Story C is, like, what's going on in the first ten minutes, and then it's completely forgotten about by the end, and, you know, mm, you go from mm-hmm. there. But uh, they, whenever they chose the Fear of Flying concept, uh, which nobody on the commentary could quite remember where it came from, uh, they ignored the fact that the Simpsons had flown together to Washington, D.C. Oh, I did not even three years, <laughs> Three years earlier with no... Uh, issues and there may be other incidents in which they flew but I can't quite remember off the top of my head uh they didn't go to Australia until later I think in season six. Oh yeah hey guys <laughs> and, and, and so anyway uh Matt Groening sounds a little bit which he is on all the commentaries regardless of how involved he was but he mentions that they never wrote like sort of a show bible Mm. and so when he received the copy of the script he was very surprised to learn that marge's father was (laughs) was a flight attendant because he then this had never somehow never been mentioned or explored for the past hundred episodes but she's Um, a woman so who cares what her dad did a lady (laughs) well and also you know an interesting corollary to that too is that they had really avoided mentioning homer's mother for the first you know seven years I just remembered. When she finally appeared, the episode was quite brilliant. But it wasn't until a completely different set of people were working on the show that they yeah. ever looked at that. And the other thing I wanted to mention about uh, is about David Merkin again, who, uh, listening to the common, commentary track, uh, I don't want to judge people here on Psychocinematic, <laughs> but um, he strikes me as a little bit obnoxious. I, I'm sure that's true, given his <laughs> career, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he says on there, when he's explaining why they did the episode, he says in very, uh, I'm going to try to do his voice, but he's like, Your therapy is near and dear to everyone in Hollywood. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so he says that. And he also says, he says this whole thing where like, yeah, every woman I ever dated, you know, as soon as she goes to the therapist, she packs her bag and she leaves. <laughs> Which, you know, okay. I don't know how to I immediately hate him. <laughs> Thank you for your work, David Merkin. But ugh. doing stand up, doing stand up comedy on the, you know, on the, on the uh, just around commentary? your buds, just 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 around the boys. Mm, so some outdated sort of views. I it sounds a little bit. I think so. Of like therapy. It's sort of the old world like stand up comedy thing too. You know, like take my wife, please. You know, it's that kind of like really yeah, hacky exactly. shit. You know. So it sounds like there's maybe not some direct lived experience but some something from whatever we can tell it's it's just that like you're dealing again with people who you know they're working it's a different era and they're not it's it's they're not likely to give a lot of interviews where they talk about where they um you know their psychic origins or whatnot um i i assume it's like you know like watching 30 rock and it's like what are we going to do next mm -hmm. like 
throwing ideas into the pit and seeing what works. That is very much not not in the first season, but pretty much from then on. Jim Brooks would take everyone to a writer's retreat once a year for the first three or four seasons where they would all be stuck in a room together and he would make them all throw out story ideas and they would decide what the season would consist of. Um, when David Merkin mm-hmm. took over, they stopped doing that. But that was what—that was how they came up with stories for the first few years, and then um, you know, so it's a little bit hard to place things like you're saying exactly to ascribe yeah. everything to a particular person. And I do want to quickly give lip service to the fact that The Simpsons is an animated show. It has a uh, <laughs> staff of directors and animators, etc. Um, and being an animation stalwart, I would normally make the argument that animators are as important to the tone of an animated show as writers. However, the way that The Simpsons was always made, and as far as I know is still made, uh, that's not so much true. Not that the directors are not talented. Brad Bird, who um, did a lot to define the look of The Simpsons, of course, is extremely talented. He's the Pixar. Yeah, ended up doing The Incredibles, also did The Iron Giant before he went to Pixar. And now does, like, Mission Impossible movies or something. I don't know. Um, The directors were great, but the thing is that on TV animation in the U.S., when you're doing 22 episodes or something like that a year, there's not a lot of time to put a lot of character into the process. Yeah. It's not like doing a seven-minute short at the Walt Disney Studio in the 30s or something like that. For one thing, the the director just animates, does storyboards in an animatic, then... I don't even know that they do key poses in final animation form in the U.S. I think that they send all that to Korea, whereas in the U.S., if like at Disney and Warner Brothers in the classic years, for example, the director and his animators, it was usually a man, that's why I say his, um, unfortunately... I'm not advocating for this situation. I'm just, you know. It's just the way it was. the way it was, sadly. The director and their animators would um, do the key poses, the main parts of the the work, and then in-betweeners would do everything, literally do everything that was in between. The Simpsons, it was a much more streamlined, systematic process where it was kind of hard. There were sometimes some very unorthodox directorial choices, camera angles, that kind of thing. But like, for example, in, in Fear of Flying, when Marge is freaking out, you know, they just basically put a line on Marge's face to denote, well, she's freaking out now, you know. And I mean, so it, I, I didn't really look into like lived experience because it doesn't seem like even in something like Finding Nemo, you can probably find like an animator who, well, I based Dory on, you know, I was, you know, approximating an emotional state. You don't really have room for that kind of thing on, on The Simpsons. So that's why I didn't go into that. So. And there's many moments when I was writing notes where I was like, like we're talking about an animated like half hour TV show and I'm, we're really analyzing it. Um, and it's almost gets ridiculous in, in how much I'm like judging the accuracy of, of the Simpsons. But this is why I started a podcast. So for the plot of Moaning Lisa, which is the season one show, I wrote here a very simple plot, Lisa sad. And then you added also video games for some reason. Pretty much. But maybe we should elaborate. <laughs> well, the, I'll say the video game story first because it, you know, seems to have been sort of just added to fill a little bit of time. It's not, I mean, not that it's bad, but it is um, just kind of Bart and Homer just having their, you know, having their little moment where Homer's upset because Bart's really good at a video game, which is a strange... I have no doubt that it happens, but it's just odd. And, and anyway, it's a boxing mm. game, 
and it's uh, Homer decides to because Bart keeps beating him. Homer decides he needs to go to the arcade to get help in learning how to be good at video boxing, and so he does that by getting the help of a of a local, a very gifted young man who is not supposed to be at the arcade, uh, who's mm-hmm. has done like three thousand fights in his original quarter, and he shows Homer all the pointers. So that's the. <laughs> That's the B story. <laughs> the A story, which is of much more relevance to us here, uh, Lisa wakes up one morning, and, and well, I mean, it probably hasn't just started, but Lisa is sad, and and she mm. is standing at the bathroom mirror, just kind of staring at nothing. The script, which I looked at, describes it as an Ingmar Bergman moment, and, <laughs> you know, the music swells, and Homer is banging on the door, and she's just kind of in her sort of, she looks lost. It's communicated very well to the animators and director's credit. It's communicated very well yeah. that she feels lost without very much in the way of, of verbal validation. And you follow her throughout the school day where she's obviously just not feeling it. She is um, alienated from her peers. She is sullen and withdrawn. And um, it's just a day that I think all of us remember quite well um Mm -hmm. it just nothing feels right and she sort of attempts to express this when she is asked because a note gets sent home from school when she refuses to play dodgeball um because she is sad that's what the note says um Mm. and homer (laughs) and marge bitch teacher but anyway (laughs) homer and marge are concerned and they ask lisa what's wrong and she makes an attempt at explaining it but can't really say because that's kind of how it works she's just sad the family tries to pitch in and help and it doesn't really do anything and homer has a few bad parenting moments like where he insists that she stop playing her saxophone in the house because it's distracting him from winning the stupid boxing game (laughs) and uh which sadly is i kind of relate to um not on his not on his end but on her end uh you know yeah um anyway and she hears uh, the sound, the distant sound of, of jazz being played, a single saxophone in the night. She exits her window and uh, walks down to downtown Springfield where she encounters Bleeding Gums Murphy, a local jazz man who is playing his lonely music on the bridge and they have a little connection. They jam together. And then at the end of the episode, uh, Lisa's due at band... Pr- oh, uh, Marge pulls... I forgot, Marge pulls Lisa away from Bleeding Gums, doesn't want her talking to strangers, which, you know, it's mm-hmm. the middle of the night, Fair it's enough. understandable. Um, and so then uh, the next day, Lisa's at band practice, and before they get there, Marge, having had a, a dream slash memory of her mother telling her how important it is to smile, tells Lisa that, mm. you know, she'll have a better time if she just goes to school and she smiles, you know. So Lisa um, earnestly sort of attempts... Fake it till you make it. Yeah, exactly. Lisa earnestly attempts to do this, and she goes and immediately gets solicited by various boys to do her homework. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Largo comes out to say, uh, you know, which is, this is a phrase that has appeared a lot in my life, where he says, I hope we won't have another display of unbridled creativity. Marge witnessing this <laughs> from a distance. <laughs> Marge witnessing this from a distance pulls yanks her away from that and um, tells her that it's okay to be sad and that we'll talk more about that. Mm. But um, 
Yeah. And then at the end, they she all... She realizes get... the error of her ways. Yeah. And then at the end, they all go to hear Bleeding Gums' band play at the jazz hole. And in a very sweet act, I think, of, of empathy, um, Bleeding Gums sings Lisa's song that she improvised on the bridge. Mm. And uh, roll credits. And the saddest girl in grade number grade two. Grade number two, yeah. And the plot of... Fear of Flying, I like started to type it out and then I stopped. So this is what I had so far. And <laughs> it's it's a little longer to explain because of all the, the A, B, C, D, E yeah. storyline. <laughs> so Homer gets kicked out of Moe's tavern because he goes too far with the prank, which is a hilarious Ah, the scene. old snake in the cash register. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he goes, ca- I can't even remember what his prank is. What, what's his prank? Uh, Homer, he... well, so yeah, they, they all do really serious, horrible things. And then Homer loosens the lid on the, uh, sugar. Oh, that's yeah. right. <laughs> and everyone flips out. Uh, sugar all over the table. This, <laughs> this actually comes up a lot in my life where like everyone else is being like, I think like really edgy and like hardcore. And then I do something that I think is like comparatively mild and everyone is like, Nathan, what the fuck? You know, and, and so I, that also happens in Bob's Burgers a lot. So I feel that. Another great show. So he has to find a new bar because he just can't cope. Uh, he goes to a very fancy bar, which isn't him. Then he walks into Cheers, which is also very funny. Um, and then he goes into a lesbian bar and <laughs> it's hilarious. The she-she lounge. The she-she lounge. And he says, Wait a minute, this lesbian bar doesn't have a fire exit. <laughs> Enjoy your death trap, ladies. Which made me laugh very much. What was her problem? <laughs> we could just, like, quote the whole episode. I mean, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where it's just, like... It was a very enjoyable watch. Um, I don't know what Don Incognito is. <laughs> oh, that's where... Okay, uh... You can take there's over a guy who <laughs> There's a guy who looks exactly like Homer. Ah, uh, that's who, right. Well, I mean, you think... Well, I'm ruining the joke now, but you think that it's Homer in disguise walking into Moe's. That's right. He tries to go back to Moe's. He says, my name is Don Incognito. And the guy, Moe, thinking that it's Homer, throws him out. And then Homer sees, Homer walks by, revealing that it wasn't Homer and and is stunned that it looks like him until he sees a dog with a puffy tail and then goes and chases that. And I've heard people saying, look, a dog with a puffy tail. Many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Homer gets to the last bar in Springfield, which is a pilot's bar. And the only way you can go get in is if you prove that you're a pilot. And Homer maintains he's a pilot. But then they suddenly need an emergency pilot. And he's the, they pick him. And he's like, but I'm not really a pilot. And they're like, oh, come on, we know you're a pilot. And of course, he does whatever he can and he blows it. He crashes the plane. I, I love it when he's like, when the... T- co-pilot alan introduces himself and homer's like i'm gonna let you do most of the work today i think you're ready for it alan (laughs) um so they realize their mistake and they offer the family a free flight somewhere Um, you can see this circuitous structure that's like you know why yeah (laughs) this is where we got here Marge is immediately very hesitant about it and makes a lot of funny quotes like, it sounds like a hassle coupled with a burden. And then what if somebody broke into the house and did laundry? They could start a fire. The busy housekeeping season is starting soon. Yeah, it's the busy housekeeping season, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) But they make it onto the plane and then Marge starts panicking and then it it seems like she's experiencing like a major panic attack and... 
screams on the plane, let me off, let me off, let me off. So they don't end up catching the plane. And from that point onwards, Marge is in a state of high anxiety. Lisa and Bart uh, convince Homer that she needs to see a psycho- psychiatrist. Parentizing, by the way. Yes, very much. And she does end up seeing a psychiatrist and then tries to figure out her root of her fear of flying. Psychiatrist played by Anne Bancroft. Which is amazing. Well, I mean, as far as the story goes, that's pretty much it. I mean, she goes into therapy. She finds out that the root cause of her fear of flying is somehow that her dad was a flight attendant, but had pretended he was a pilot to keep up appearances, I guess, in the button-down 1950s Mm -hmm. and uh, early 60s, maybe. And uh, somehow that instituted a fear of just anything to do with planes. And so learning this, Marge apparently is somehow then able to fly. Yes, completely uh, cured. And, but we never find out if Homer is going to be allowed back into Moe's. No. Um, and we just kind of dropped that. <laughs> and I guess the end of the episode is they get in the plane. It's all fine. Marge is all quiet and calm and then they crash into a body of water <laughs> it's funny because watching these the david merkin episodes it seems perfectly co- well i mean i don't know about perfectly it seems reasonably coherent while you're watching it especially i have to say when they were originally broadcast and they had commercials and everything because then like there's a, sort of this breathing space watching it all together um it does they do seem like a little bit frantic um and then yeah. when you're thinking about it afterward it's kind of like wait what just happened which i mean honestly i think was kind of influential on i mean every time that i see a recent comedy made in the u.s i feel like the story is completely incoherent and it's all just like make space for whoever the a-list snl alumni are to like do their their riffing for the you know for 20 minutes and then it's on to the next scene and yeah. it just doesn't it's, it's just like how many jokes can we understand if here? you really stop and think about it but anyway so let's talk about accuracy <laughs> um and we'll start with moaning lisa let's do um, that so she's obviously experiencing depression i looked into the dsm criteria of the time because that's what i do <laughs> No one else cares but me. Um, I care. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So at the time, the DSM-3 revised would have been published. I think it was like 1987. And pretty much the the criteria of depression itself, like what the symptoms are, haven't changed. Um, But what you need for a diagnosis has. So in today's DSM, the DSM-5, you must be experiencing five or more symptoms during a two-week period, and at least one of the symptoms should be either a depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. But okay. back in uh, 1989, when this episode was released, she only needed one of nine for it to be present uh, yep. for any length of time. I'm pretty... Like, I, Michael was asleep, so I couldn't use his uni password to actually look up the actual criteria, but this was... I found this in a couple of... Damn it articles so hopefully that's correct please correct me if i'm wrong fellow psychologists i it's interesting that you only needed one because i'll go through the uh symptoms and you you might see why that would be a bit minimalist um for example one of the criteria is either significant weight loss or weight weight gain increased appetite or decreased appetite so you know if i'm just really hungry for two weeks (laughs) i could have depression (laughs) (laughs) more likely a parasite but anyway (laughs) 
also it's like and you'll either have increased appetite or decreased appetite yeah you know? it's kind of like which is still yes. the, like that's still the current one of the current symptoms because it can Im- uh, impact your appetite depending on what you're what you tend towards like i'm an eater when i'm super anxious or depressed unless i'm you mm-hmm. know catatonic but for some people it's like i can't think about food i feel ill so right. you know everyone's a bit different but the four criteria are number one depressed mood number two markedly diminished interest in life activities etc number three was the appetite slash weight gain or loss number four insomnia or hypersomnia so similarly (laughs) to appetite either you can't sleep at all or you can't stop sleeping which that makes sense and yeah like i I definitely um, know people in my life who have experienced depression and have have gone once once more of a sleeper, once the insomniac. Yeah, I've experienced both extremes of that. Yeah, me too. Sure. <laughs> um, number five is psychomotor agitation or psychomotor retardation, which I hate saying. This is the 1987 mm. criteria, but what that actually means is either a slowing down of thought and reduction of physical movement or a speeding up of thought and increase of physical movement. So I think in the new criteria, it's more the slowing down of thought and movement rather mm. than the agitation. Number six is fatigue or loss of energy. Number seven is feelings of worthlessness. Number eight, inability to concentrate. And number nine, recurrent thoughts of death. Yes, yeah, so that's a full criteria. And you said they only... You did one of those criteria in 87? Yeah, so, like, she definitely would qualify. (laughs) Uh, The first first two that you said, uh, you know, were exactly what's depicted. Um, Yeah, you can... I think it's actually, like you were saying, a a pretty accurate depiction of, particularly as a teenage girl, or or Mm. boy, yeah, or non-binary, someone who would be experiencing those symptoms... She doesn't seem to find any pleasure. And she says, a simple cupcake will bring me no pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, like you can really see even in the very um, simple animation how sad and lost she looks. She's also quite like existential. Like even though she, like we were saying, she she doesn't know why she's sad, but it's like the weight of the world is on her shoulders. She's talking about all the awful things going on in the world. What's the point? Would it make any difference if... I ever existed. And like, what does she say? She's playing. I'm wailing out for the homeless family living out of their car. Mm -hmm. Um, Like she's just overthinking about all the awful stuff in the world. It can only see the negatives. She can't see any positives. Right. It's very classic cognitive depression. And I I think that um, some of that, some of the dialogue that she delivers when she is trying to explain when people ask um, doesn't sound particularly realistic coming from an eight-year-old. Um, That's true. I forget she's only I eight. Do think... <laughs> I keep thinking she's 13 or something. <laughs> although I do think that... Um, I mean, she's Lisa... been eight for 30 years, but anyway. It is in keeping with Lisa's personality to have these, like, sort of, um, you know, concerns about the underprivileged and that sort of thing. I mean, and I don't think that that's wildly out of character, but... True. Especially not in the first season when she's still being established. But at the same time, it's obviously a grown writer writing mm. that dialogue, and you can definitely sense it. Having said that, I do think that one thing... So I, I will say, just to your overall point, that um, this has always rung really true for me in terms of like coping with moodiness, depression, etc. Um, 
because, and I think to, a, a, a good barometer of that is that when I first saw this episode, when I was about 11, I, I didn't really understand it. I, I kind of had this attitude of like, well, why is she sad? What, what is it? What's, what's the problem? Mm. I, I couldn't understand the, the, I, I needed something more concrete almost mm. in order for me to, for it to register that it was the real problem. Yeah. Um, but, but then as I got older and I would revisit it, 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 seemed more and more true and, and honest to me and I think that that is a good sign that it's getting it right because as you get older and you mm. have more time to experience this I mean I know that some people Lisa's age and younger do experience depression but um for me personally I, I guess I hadn't really yet but I mean I think that as time goes on especially if you're when you're a teenager and it's almost inevitable that you're going to struggle with mood a bit mm. it, it 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 just seemed like the lack of explanation was was very helpful to me mm. personally yeah which helpful was another part of the conversation but uh, <laughs> but I think that whenever an adult says to Lisa like what is it that's wrong and she usually has an answer mm. and she doesn't really say I don't know but she says a lot of different things like you were mentioning and, and it does seem like she's kind of talking around the problem and I, I, I think that that's intentional I think that it's like when when she's prompted to explain her depression, she wants to say something. Yeah. But she doesn't really get at what it actually is. Mm. Because, I mean, the things that she's talking about are always true. Mm. They've always been true. And, and, and I mean, in her lifetime. And so it's, it's hard to quantify the idea that she would be in this state because of, you know, the farmers being pushed off their land, etc. Yeah. Um, she does get a little more honest in the scene where she encounters Bleeding Gums Murphy, the jazz musician, because it seems like encountering another person who expresses themselves that in that way, she is comfortable enough to express what might seem outwardly like petty concerns, things about, you know, the cupcake being taken away even though she didn't want the cupcake, which is also, I think, accurate because, mm. you know, you register grievances after the fact that maybe didn't seem that way at the yeah. time. Um, Definitely. You know, why did she, why didn't she let me have my cup, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, but she expresses all this, and one of the things that resonates the most with me is that Bleeding Gums, he seems like a good guy, a good influence, but when she sings her song about all the problems of being eight years old, and again, expresses herself as best as she knows how, but in, in the language of an eight-year-old, mm. you know, he says, well, you play pretty well for somebody who doesn't have any real problems. <laughs> it's Piece a, of shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, but that is the way that adults treat you if you are sad when you are a young Absolutely, person. Absolutely, yeah. And often the way that adults treat you if you're another adult and you're sad. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, it's like, and you can always shut somebody down with that. You can always say that there's somebody else who has it worse. Mm. You can always say that there's someone with material difficulties, with, you know, lower needs not being met, with just, you know, anything. Mm. But that doesn't change the fact that in the end it's going to impact you in the same way. You're going to have this, this sense of despair and you can't. It's not like you can say to yourself, well, these are really minor problems, so therefore I'm not going to be upset about them anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. it doesn't actually help the situation yeah. for you, or how, how you feel. Yeah. And yeah, going going back to the fact that she's eight years old and, and she's experiencing all that worry about the world, and, and the fact that it is written by, by an adult, I, I went through mm -hmm. a similar, like I went through a lot of anxiety when I was about Lisa's age, so... It would have been mm -hmm. nice if I got to watch this show. This show, um, <laughs> and I, you know, it was similar. Like, how can we sleep at night when there are poisonous animals <laughs> out, out in the backyard, <laughs> and you know, there are 
murderers and mad cow disease, which I think was around at the time, like all of this awful stuff. Ooh, yeah. Um, and that it just wouldn't, I couldn't take my mind off it. And I have come across lots of girls around, you know, grade, yeah, grade three to grade five that just, you, they start, particularly because Lisa's, like you say, written to have, she's a bit, bit of an activist type of character. And this is kind of the form of, even though she doesn't actually age in the show, this is almost like the formative years of her developing into that character because she cares. She's that overthinker, too smart for her own good sort of um, right. kid where, like, very sensitive to the events of the world and the um, the problems that are out there. Yeah, that kind of hit, it's kind of that age where you start caring about that sort of stuff a little bit, so... It, it, it rang true to me. You don't very often see, um, I don't know about media now really, because um, the shows that are sort of targeted to younger people, I'm not really familiar with now. But when I was growing up, there wasn't really a voice for, I mean, we'll just say mood disorders. I mean, anything that's just like um, someone who's not, fe- the idea of not feeling 100% great was kind of taboo almost mm. I feel like when I was growing up and I'm sure when you were growing mm-hmm. up I don't know how different it would have been between our countries but I mean it, it's probably not a lot I'd say <laughs> probably not a lot yeah and yeah. I mean also being a boy versus a girl I mean I think that there's probably a little bit of a different um attitude toward being sad or being you know upset and I wanted to mention really quickly actually that um I don't think that The Simpsons was referencing this intentionally, but last year I saw a, a movie called Europa 51, which is a movie by Roberto Rossellini that's, um, it's actually quite famous, um, but it's not really like a first year film student type thing. Um, <laughs> it ends up being a religious allegory, but the whole first you know act of the movie is uh, Ingrid Bergman's son is in the parlance of the time, this being the early 50s, a sensitive child. Um, He is upset and feeling neglected and has no particular thing that his mood is tied to. He's just very upset. And he is trying really hard to reach out to both of his parents to express that he's not feeling right at all. And they are both brushing completely past him. But I was just saying that, like, just like Lisa in this episode, the boy in this film... um, even seeing it as a grown man, I'm 37 mm-hmm. now, and even seeing it now, I felt very seen just seeing that depicted because I feel like it's something that does not get shown. Just a mm-hmm. child who is sad and doesn't know why. And it's as simple as it sounds, it's very powerful to just see that depicted. So yeah. for The Simpsons to tackle that in the, in, you know, in the context of what we know The Simpsons to be, what the, we know the attitudes around The Simpsons to be, is just, I don't know, I, I think it's very uh, profound. Yeah, I, do, I totally agree. Should we talk about fear of flying in what it's depicting? Um, definitely anxiety. But uh, what I would uh, determine as a specific phobia, and in this episode, the DSM-4 would have just come out. Uh-huh. So it would have just come out that year. So they may, if they were actually looking at the DSM, then it would have been probably the DSM-3 that they would have been using. Um, But I'm sure they weren't. (laughs) But let's just assume that the writers were super savvy. Damn Harvard guys. (laughs) Well, you know, they should know. Let's assume they already had a fresh copy of the DSM-4. And specific phobia 
uh, is characterized by a marked and persistent fear that's excessive or unreasonable, uh, cued by the presence or anticipation of a specific object or situation. That's just like a general phobia, just of any... Yeah, any... So that's the the criteria required. The exposure to the phobic stimulus almost invariably provokes an immediate anxiety response, which can take the form of a a panic attack. Um, The person recognises that the fear is excessive or unreasonable. Yeah. That, That criteria is actually taken out of the current DSM. So even if you're an adult, you don't necessarily have to recognize that it's excessive, but it can be. Um, the phobic situation is avoided or else endured with intense anxiety or distress. Uh, and the last specific criteria is that the avoidance, anxious anticipation or distress in the feared situation interferes significantly with the person's normal routine, occupational functioning, social activities or relationships, or there's marked distress about having the phobia. So the duration has to be at least six months and it can't be better accounted for by another mental disorder such as uh, OCD or PTSD or panic disorder. But often the phobia can lead to like panic disorder, which I think is pretty much what happens (laughs) with Marge. Um, There are five different types. There's animal type, natural environment type, uh, like fear of heights or storms. Uh, blood injection injury type, mm. so like fear of needles. Uh, situational type, which would be what Marge is experiencing because it's flying. Mm. It could also be like driving or elevators. And then there's other specific types, with, like clowns. And in the DSM IV, they said or midgets, which wow. I don't know if, if uh, we use that word anymore. We, I don't think um, we do. <laughs> So, just based on that criteria, Marge, like, ticks all the boxes. Yeah. So, it, it's, apart from that early season where they take a fight, I'm pretty sure she meets the criteria <laughs> for the length of time, because um, it seems like it's something she happened, that's happened most of her life. Yeah, she says, I'm not a good flyer, and, you know, she's like, I never told yeah. you this, but yeah, yeah. Even though I was on a plane. Not <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, you can see the anxiety response... Uh, throughout and that it sort of stays with her and the avoidance is causing problems as well. I thought it was a really very over-dramatized, <laughs> uh, very cartoonish, but it is a cartoon, um, but accurate depiction of anxiety. What did you think? Correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe this isn't appropriate to say on the podcast, but um, we both have experience with anxiety. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and at least I, I definitely have. <laughs> and also depression. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I have never, however, had a uh, panic attack, but I have witnessed panic attacks in other people. Mm. And um, I, I was really curious what you would think of, of how it was depicted. And like you said, I mean, I think that it um, it does seem alarming enough that to be sort of real while at the same time being, like you said, exaggerated for the purposes of being an entertaining, you know, situation, comedy and cartoon. Etc. Yeah. I guess it. I I was sliding toward maybe inaccurate, but after talking to you about it and thinking about it more, I I think that it's, it's basically it's basically good. I mean, it's basically um, solid. I think. I had panic attacks when I was little, and I have had the odd one as an adult. And if I, <laughs> if I was a child version of Marge on this plane, I would be doing what she did. <laughs> <I> was... <laughs> let me help. Let me help. Let me help. Let me help. <laughs> 
I was a pretty dramatic kid, but yeah, I probably would have been screaming and <laughs> make a whole family get off the plane. I don't think I flew at the peak of my anxiety, but I'm sure that's what I would have done. One thing that's sort of interesting is that, um, so the way that she kind of responds makes it seem like this is either the first time that she's experienced a panic attack to this extent, or it's mm. like, um, you know, it's the first time in a long time. Which I guess yeah. is meant, meant to suggest that she only has it when it's specifically associated with a plane. That said, I'm curious about what the basis would be for the fact that after she is removed from the, the stimulus, if that's the right word, mm. for the next week or whatever it is, she is um, in this, hor- you know, really... Fr- um... A state of cat-like readiness. <laughs> yeah, a state of cat-like readiness. <laughs> Which, uh, do you want to say it? <laughs> That that, oh, that line is... It's a little bit on the nose. <laughs> I was thinking this as well because, I, you know, I, when I had my first panic attack, it, it to me, it came out of nowhere and it was by, uh, just like a, a random mm-hmm. trigger. But I didn't feel like I had anxiety until after that first panic attack. Oh, okay, I see. Um, yeah. And then, then it was like you have panic about feeling panicked. like it, And that is what sort of panic disorder is. I've heard... That the only way to get through it kind of is to like be aware of what's happening, sort of like yeah, be aware of the fact that you're having a panic attack, rather than trying to push it off and avoid it. And um, right, because what what I think happens to Marge is like she's she's she experiences that and then she's almost like traumatized by it, but also like knows that there's there's still that imminent trigger of going on a plane again one day. Um, but it's like, right. it, like it sort of lets off a, a trigger of that anxiety state. It's like you've gone in that fight or flight immediate anxiety mode and it's been so traumatic trying to get out of it. And it's like it's, you, it sort of unleashes that fight or flight level a bit higher for, for a while. Um, and it's part of it is like trying to like not want to feel that again. And then because you're kind of thinking about it, sort of eliciting it as you think about it. <laughs> Um, and anyone who's experienced it is probably listening to this podcast, feeling panicky, (laughs) just imagining it, (laughs) even as I'm speaking about it, my, my fight or flight's a bit triggered right now. Like it's, it's the nature of panic disorder (laughs) is being panicked about the feeling of panic. So like, that's kind of what I think she's experiencing. And it's just obviously those like random distractions and crazy things that your mind does when you're in that constant, like triggered state. And I love like racing thoughts. Yeah. Kind of and just doing whatever you can to distract yourself from it and just avoid yeah. having to deal with the thing. Because obviously where this episode doesn't go, the only way to manage anxiety is to kind of face it, but learn strategies mm-hmm. while you face it so that you're not as fight or flighty. So the more you avoid the mm-hmm. thing that causes anxiety, the more your anxiety will increase. Damn. Is that what um, I've been doing wrong? But I mean, it's not a quick fix. Unlike this episode, <laughs> but I did, I do love the little things that she does. Like, I just realized we never had a wedding for the cat and dog and they're living in sin. I laughed very hard. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, it's definitely a less nuanced portrayal of the mental illness of anxiety. Right. Of anxiety than, than the other episode is of depression. But at the same yeah. time, anxiety is, um, is inevitably going to be filmed in a different way, I suppose, because it's not, um... 
I was just going to say that I hate to say this about like something this serious, but it almost seems like depression in a way is like more cinematic mm. because there's all this like, you know, the brooding and everything and, you know, the space around you and all this, whereas anxiety is so much like a, um, it's, it's a hard thing to express mm. in a way. Like, depression is more, you can just express it in the absence of things, but yeah. anxiety is like... And, like, I don't mean to be crude about it, but depression is can be sexier than anxiety. Anxiety is pretty mm-hmm. ugly, <laughs> if that yes, makes sense. Yes, precisely, yes. When someone's having an anxiety attack, they're not there. <laughs> there's no... It's very hard to, to manage and... Like, they're basically losing control and freaking out, whereas... It's not cool and dark, which, I mean, I'm not saying depression yeah. is... Depression fucking sucks, it's not cool. but it's like, <laughs> but you can make, I mean, you know, there's all those, you know, Ingmar, like we were saying, yeah. Ingmar Bergman earlier. So, I mean, there's all that, you know, so it's like, exactly, there's, yeah. there's, it's more... there's sort of this, this bohemian aesthetic you can get yeah. <laughs> from depression. It's, it's abs- absolutely true. So maybe they did the best they could, but you know, like you said, it's, I mean, cartoonish, you know, it is what it is. Um, and it's like, obviously the style has changed from season one so it's a little bit it's a little bit more played for laughs which you know we'll talk about that later (laughs) in terms of accuracy of therapy and treatment in moaning lisa there's not really therapy but it's kind of there's there's a bit of a a theme of music as therapy so which would when would that have become kind of a mainstream concept i think it's been used for some time i didn't do my research but like oliver Sacks has a whole book about it in music oh that's right musicophilia and also actually i just realized that it is mentioned in uh, vertigo um, oh yeah which is 1958 so i know that at that point it's a it's it's, it's a big enough deal to be an hollywood film yeah and it must have been around for a while and this art therapy has been around for probably just as long so it's all use of creative tools as therapy but I think um, it's a little bit, <laughs> I, I sort of like the line from Bleeding Gums that jazz isn't about making you feel better. It's about making everybody else feel bad and making a buck or two, which is kind of funny. But it also sort of speaks to how you're drawn to sad music when you're sad because it's like it validates how you're feeling and helps you kind Cathartic, of experience yeah. the emotion. Yeah. And that's very true. His attitude is very accurate to the way that jazz musicians of uh, of that sort of time, you know, tend to think about their work and in terms of like the the reason that it is like a good uh money <laughs> a good source well to the extent that it was uh a good way to make money off people's your fellow human beings misery i do think uh, for for its time though it's probably accurate that they wouldn't have taken her to therapy because i agree both mom and dad don't really understand what's happening you know, in 1989, therapy mm-hmm. for a kid probably would have been like, what? No. Um, What's wrong with my child? Yeah. yeah. I still get people who, when I say I, I work with kids, they go, oh, you do counseling with kids? Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they are not absolved of all feelings. But in Fear of Flying, obviously the mm. whole episode is about therapy. Yes. And it's obviously their intent to make an episode about therapy. I learned not that long ago um, that a lot of the episode takes key points from the movie and book, which I haven't read, The Prince of Tides, um, Mm. Barbara Streisand film starring Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand. 
uh, from the early 1990s, which would have been quite well known around this time. Not, mm. I don't think, as much now. I only know it from the from Arrested Development. Tobias mentions it. <laughs> There's one direct reference to it at the end of the episode, and there. Generally speaking, and I, I can't. When I saw the episode, I mean, when I saw the movie a couple of years ago, I was really struck by how many things seemed to directly inspire this episode. But at the moment, um, the specific examples escape me. But generally, the film is about a man who is depressed and has re- and very um, has trouble communicating with his wife and other people and has recently either lost a family member to suicide or something similar and ends up having an affair with that family member's therapist Mm. uh and she basically does therapy on him while they're having an affair and you know that's that's the hell of a thing um (laughs) i think i've said this on the podcast before i get so sick of the trope of the therapist having a relationship with a family member of a client or a client or the client yeah which is yeah only bad therapists do that i mean yeah and i mean it's like so like damaging just even in concept that it's just like it's amazing that it's such a i mean i guess it makes sense that it's a trope because it's kind of like in therapy you are so sort of naked and vulnerable i guess exactly yeah and so and i mean obviously it's really common for and and almost expected in a way for people to have you know transference or whatnot exactly yeah but it's i mean that's a reasonable thing to deal with but turning that into a situation in a, in a piece of media where it's like you actually are going all the way with it and it's mm. still trying to have a therapeutic relationship while also having the romantic sexual relationship. Conflating that with a actual relationship is like really harmful. But I guess because it was such a visible example of therapy and specifically of a female therapist in media, it was something for them to kind of um, riff on a bit. Yeah. Um, so there are quite a few things from it here. Um, you were mentioning how, to the extent we can ascribe any sort of character continuity to The Simpsons at this pe- at this point, um, Lisa seems to have uh, adopted some of the lessons she learned in Moaning Lisa when she's talking to Marge. Yeah. Like, Marge kind of repeats her line, which is, like, the important thing to, is to repress your feelings right deep down <laughs> inside of you, which is what she exactly what she said to Lisa in episode one. Um, and Lisa's already like, no, no, if we do, they can come out in other ways. And they do. And there's also the damage of Marge's mother. Yeah. Um, coming back. over it. It's like, mother always said, don't make waves, you know? Yeah. And I think that resistance to the therapy initially is like still accurate today. Like I'm fine and it's too expensive. And like, yeah, she's yeah. obviously not fine, but it's just like, oh no, I don't need therapy. No, that's ridiculous. That would be silly, which people still say. Yeah. And they did. Uh, I thought it was good that they mentioned the uh, sliding scale. Uh, in, yeah. I was, surpri- I was surprised that came up actually. Because, Me too. Um, I was like, oh wow. <laughs> because of course, like other things, uh, therapy is, can be very expensive in America. And, um, mm. but it is true that uh, based on income, they will uh, give you a break. Yeah. For something that should be free. <laughs> it would make sense for it to be free. And in Australia, we have universal health care. Yeah! So. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm happy uh, for you. I'm not, you know... I'm... Anyway, we won't go into that. Um, but <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> we have 10 rebated sessions, but the rebate has not changed in 
20 years. So it's... What, what does that mean, the rebated? So you get, um, for a, just a general psychologist session, you get $80 uh, approximately um, mm. off your session. And that's not a lot. No, I happen to have good, decent insurance through my job. But I mean, still just this last, just a month ago, um, I've been having migraine oh, no. problems, resurgence lately. Um, not as bad, not as bad as it used to be, but noticeable. And they wouldn't get paid for my MRI because they said, you know, the notes don't indicate that you have uh, bad enough symptoms because we won't pay for it unless it shows that you're like slurring speech and losing memory dead. and it's like so they don't want to give me an mri until i'm going to be like dead anyway so now i'm going to a neurologist to see if they can have better luck but i mean that's the kind of thing that you deal with here but actually when i said that about i think what you guys do is so cool i actually meant therapists because i mean i'm just like really impressed with with that and i mean just to tie it in with with this i just think that even though it's not magic there's a kind of magic like often my therapist will say something that puts things mm. so much in place for me so all of a sudden that it just has this, even though that's not what it's about, it's not about like easy solutions or anything like that, but just, and I think it's depicted somewhat in this episode, just that like sort of gentle manner of, of suggesting maybe it's something to do with this and, you know, you put the puzzle pieces together in your head mm. and then it's like, wow, you know. Although with Marge, of course, she's not allowed to put the ultimate puzzle piece together in her head, which is that, her <laughs> which is that Homer is being absolutely awful. But go on. Well, I appreciate that you describe partly what we do as a bit of magic, because that's very nice. But we don't have a magic wand I know, as much no, as people I, I, wish we do. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. Sometimes it's just, you know, the pieces are there in your head. Yeah. And it's like just having that blank slate and that completely safe environment with no judgment to help connect them together right yeah it's a beautiful thing yeah you mentioned that um the ultimate puzzle piece would be the husband and <laughs> i think it's it's very nice how i like how she's like i'm not here to become to play a blame game but then like writes the husband yeah 100 <laughs> percent. yeah on a piece of paper <laughs> very quickly and i know i've definitely had that thought and like i said you know i'm not here to point fingers and blame isn't helpful but i've you know in my head gone but, you know, if you just moved out, that would be really, you know. <laughs> but I think as a as a therapist, I, I kind of liked how she was portrayed in that she's very validating yeah. to Marge. And, like, when Marge just talks about, you know, she had a monkey's lunchbox, <laughs> the, the therapist's like, the monkeys were about rebellion. They were about political and social upheaval. <laughs> it's such a good line. <laughs> it's such a perfect joke. I love that. But, I mean, and, and like you're saying, it, it's, a, it's a great joke, but it also is, like, it's a good example of what a therapist does because it is like being on the side. I mean, yeah. even in something even like that, it's where it's little like, details, well, yeah. you were absolutely right to be upset because, you know, yeah. Because you know. they were being stupid. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I like doing that. Like if someone will bring up like a story like that, I'll be like, yeah, they were the bomb or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. And it also helps develop that rapport. Oh yeah, it's absolutely. And, and, um, so Homer obviously doesn't want Marge to go to therapy, like from the beginning. Yeah. And one, one of the things that, um, you know, Marge also kind of has the resistance, like you were saying, because of the price and whatnot. And uh, among the avenues they try to go down is like sort of a kind of perverse exposure therapy that Homer initiates where he, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he uh, takes out video, uh, VHS copies of Alive, uh, Fearless, and what's the other one? Hero? 
um, all yeah. movies that had revolved around aviation and crashes and that sort of thing, which is just, <laughs> you know. And then the other thing is that, like, she ends up calling a radio psychic. Uh, yeah. You, you will die a terrible, terrible death. And, uh... <laughs> That's one of the quotes that I remember from, my, like, in my head for many years and didn't realize it was in this episode. <laughs> so good. There's those in every one of them. But, uh, you know, it, it, um... How, in your experience, do people still kind of like, tr in, in their attempt to avoid the stigma of going to therapy, do they still do things like try horrible things like psychics, <laughs> astrologists, I'm not, whatever? I haven't come across many people that go to psychics, but I mean, some people have, but not as like an alternative to therapy. But that it definitely, you know, happens, I think, all over the world. Like the whole wellness industry is all about that. Yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah. you know, if you just have this green smoothie every day. <laughs> And, you know, put this, like, stone up your vagina or whatever goop. Goop, tells yeah, you I was going to say, what is it? This is the Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> thing, the goop. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, it's so infuriating, like, if you, like, concentrate on it too long, because it's just, like, oh. But I do like how in, in the fact that she goes to the psychic, it's, like, kind of, I... I don't know if it was their intent, but sort of showing, you know, she can try all these other things, but inevitably she's just going to have to go and deal with it and get some therapy. Yeah, there are no real shortcuts. And I mean, like in the U.S., people will go to psychics to like avoid dealing with like grief over someone's death. And, you know, it's just that there's. Yeah. And I mean, psychic is just the, the one example. But I mean, there's lots of things like that, like you were saying, just anything in the wellness and the, the you know, all hucksters. And know. it doesn't mean they can't be helpful in some way. Like, I'm sure grieving over a loved one going to a psychic is probably very comforting mm, yeah um it might actually be very helpful and like grief is a very normal process too so maybe they don't need therapy as well so but if it's something like this sort of phobia you kind of yeah the best your best bet is getting some therapy it's stopping you from living your life yeah um i think the, like just that some of the things the therapist says is also pretty accurate like you know and still accurate today that it's a private sanctuary and whatever they talk about is between them. Right. Even though Homer tries to thwart that quite a bit. Wow. Yeah. But it is interesting that Bart sees Skinner in the waiting room. Oh yeah. Uh, I've read a lot about how if you, for example, if you as a therapist run into a, a client in public, mm. then the protocol mm. is not to acknowledge that you see them. Generally, I think it's like just if they acknowledge you, right. say hello. But don't go up to, don't make a point of acknowledging them. Because the, you know, they might be with Homer and Homer might say, well, who's that? And, you know, that's, yeah, okay, yeah. well, that's just someone, yeah. you know, just somebody I know. Just, but if just... they want to say hi, then, you know, of course, say hi. But I thought it was interesting that when Bart and Skinner interact there, that Skinner is right there in the public waiting area, but he obviously doesn't want yeah. to be seen. And I mean, obviously you have an expectation of privacy in the actual therapist's office. But yeah. um, the unfortunate thing is that Skinner is then shamed for being in therapy. Yes. And then makes that Freudian slip like, I've got some issues with my smother. I mean, mother. <laughs> <laughs> but g getting back to the therapy she gives, um, I think the exposure of the root cause of Marge's fear is a bit on the nose. Um, and it, it didn't take that much to get to it. I mean, sometimes yeah. therapy helps people get, come to that realization and validate thoughts that haven't been validated. But that's the first step in real life. I mean, that would be like the beginning of the process. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we both agree that like the fact that it was because her father was actually a stewardess. Yeah. Um, is a little bit misogynistic, 
queer phobic. It also doesn't make any uh, sense. And, and but yeah, you're definitely right. I mean, it's very <laughs> it's it's very dated um, that it would be like a problem. Uh, but by 1994, I, I I don't know because I didn't I had not been on a plane a commercial flight until uh, what 2008. Yeah, and mm. but to my knowledge. By 1994, I don't feel like a male flight attendant would have been that uncommon. And certainly no. wouldn't be something... I mean, there could have been one on the plane that Marge freaked out on. In fact, there probably was. And so it's kind of... I don't know. It just seems like a real stretch to make that... I mean, I know it's for the sake of a joke. Yeah, it obviously was just playful laughs. I guess I just wish it was but... a better joke. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It did not date well. And given that Homer's experience at the um lesbian bar was done in such a like he's cool with it way yeah and and the drawings it's, by it's the sort way of out of place it, it is and i mean that's probably like when you have like this huge writer's room and people are all on different spectrums of you know yeah but, exactly uh i i do want to really quickly about the shishi lounge i i looked very closely at the background characters in that they did a good job drawing like a variety of of of, of women that did not <laughs> correspond to like a sort of what i guess would then have been a really ludicrous stereotype stereotype but anyway yeah true marge also the fact that she is thrown for her entire life by her dad being not a pilot but a flight attendant when she was according to the show if we're going by the show's own text which i know is a thorny is 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 a minefield (laughs) because they kept trouble keeping consistency with themselves but i mean in this episode uh, i think in season two when uh homer and marge are shown in high school marge is a pretty ardent I think it would be second wave feminist because it's around 1972 mm. to four. She subscribes, I think, to Miss Magazine, the Gloria Steinem magazine, and uh, does the does a bra burning demonstration with a friend because there's a joke about how fast it burns. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, and it's just adding that into the cornucopia of like who Marge is established as having been, and comparing that with well, she her father not corresponding to traditional gender roles so alarmed her Mm. that it throttled her for her entire life. And I don't know. I mean, maybe there is some precedent in real life that no matter how, like, I mean, there is precedent for the fact that no matter how ostensibly liberal you are, if you have, there can be something inside you where if your son or daughter comes out to you, for example, you react in a way that you didn't expect. And that's, I mean, that Mm. sucks, but it happens. And maybe that's why she repressed it. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Which Good point. I'm sure they didn't actually think of no, we've thinking... when make, coming up with it. But maybe that's kind of the reason why she couldn't face it is because it's not it doesn't align with who she sees herself now. We're probably thinking this through more than they did, but you know. That's... Exactly. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> that's what this podcast is all about. I do like when she they do get to that point and the psychologist the psychiatrist says, "Oh, tell me more about your father." Mm-hmm. And then her her she's like completely clams up like yeah i've been in those moments where you've hit a nerve and they've they're they're immediately resistant like oh that's a sore point i know that's where we need to explore <laughs> and i really love i would have loved to say especially with the adults i see not so much the kids um get back here and tell me about your father <laughs> just, like, just like the therapist does um and michael was telling me i was going to get him to follow up on this but answering a question with just free association like um, Marge does like oh father father Christmas oh it's Christmas soon (laughs) is actually a common psychological thought process when you don't want to talk about something 
and it has a name, but he couldn't tell me, and I didn't look it up. So we well, can insert him <laughs> saying it now and just saying, "Hi, everybody, I'm Mike." You know, <laughs> the uh, the term is that's really interesting because um, I, I just never would have suspected that that was based on any real thing. I always thought it was just a total non sequitur joke and just marge being manic or or whatnot you know but that's yeah maybe it came from a real experience and seeing seeing all the other ways planes have affected her was very funny and i laughed yeah north north by northwest bit and the uh the yeah the the toy plane catching on fire was it that's (laughs) i was very funny but it was also just a little bit on the nose. I've said on the nose too many times this episode. But it's all a rich tapestry. I think with with that in mind too, it's un, like I think like we said, like she just finds out that that's her root cause and then she's happily ha- happily gets on a plane, which is absolutely right. not accurate. Like she's seen her a few times by this point, so I think she would be trying to do this a mm. little bit earlier is to do some systematic desensitization, which is I don't know if you've experienced it, but getting gradually exposed to the stimulus which would be Mm -hmm. flying or planes and like sort of ranking how anxiety provoking different experiences with that Uh, would be so it might be looking at a picture of a plane and then moving on to actually like looking at a plane and then actually standing on a plane and then actually flying like would be like the top like creating like a hierarchy of what would be the most anxiety provoking. So you would tell a client in their off time to go and and go to the airport and stand where there's a plane, or you would go with them to... If, you know, if they wanted to pay the extra, you could go with them. (laughs) Buy me a plane ticket. But yeah, like that sort of thing, like watch a movie or, you know, but also teach anxiety management strategies at the same time. Because what will generally happen is in the presence of an anxiety provoking stimulus, your body will naturally reduce their anxiety because it just can't be in that state forever you you sort of ride the wave but also with breathing techniques or relaxation techniques or whatever it is mindfulness then bringing that anxiety level down at each sort of step and then moving on to the next once you're like ah i can look at planes Mm, on mm -hmm. the screen that's fine so (laughs) that wasn't described or portrayed in this this show, I can't imagine why that would have been so interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, a root cause isn't just like, doesn't just fix the problem. So yeah, and I mean, that's where you run up against, well, it's a 20 minute, you know, program. But I mean, sometimes and I mean, that's, that's inevitable. But at the same time, would have been nice to see a little bit though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, the time having to work within the time constraint can sometimes create an incorrect impression like that, you know, where... and that was a therapy that would have been around for like 30, 40 years before then, I think it was developed in the well, Pavlov. Oh, right, right. Those times. So, like, 40s? I don't know. I'm not a historian of psychology. You can't be everything, so. Can't be everything. End of part one.